Well, well, what a powerful time together, amen? Um, so the Holy Spirit's not through moving, right? Just because we stop singing, He doesn't just move when we sing, amen? Uh, he speaks to us through the Word of God, and, and uh, we come with great anticipation to this moment. Um, church, I believe that the Lord is mobilizing a people for His glory around the world. And we have the great privilege of partnering with some of the best, I think. Um, you know, Gary is right now in Atlanta. Um, uh, the climate in Haiti is tough, but he's, he's working in Atlanta right now uh, and working to build a, a house of prayer there and, and develop a people of God who are wanting to hear from God and, and work for the Lord. And uh, that's what I'm praying for God to do here. Is that what you're asking for the Lord to do? For people who are in tune with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, and just bringing about the kingdom of God. Well, the Word of God is life-giving. It's such an honor um, for me to bring you God's Word week after week. And so as, as we open the Scriptures, we should all be challenged and encouraged and pushed, motivated, compelled, equipped through our time together. This is more than just an information dump. You understand? We're not, we're not just conveying knowledge and information. Every time we open this word, we're rediscovering the great worth of Jesus Christ and repositioning our lives accordingly. So treasuring Jesus, it changes what you live for, right? Does it? As we look to Acts chapter 21 today, what we'll see is a little bit of conflict. Uh, Not heavy conflict, it's conflict among friends, but it's one man who's determined with everything in him to do what the Spirit has called him to do. And another group of people who are great people, they're godly people, they're trying to seek the Lord, but they're actually trying to talk him out of it. So turn your attention, if you will, to Acts chapter 21. Let me give a little backstory as you're finding your place there. We, we left off with Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. We spent a couple of weeks talking about eldership and pastors. Last week talked specifically about how elders are protectors of the flock, shepherds who protect the flock. And Paul was calling them to rise up as leaders and be the shepherds who care for the flock of God. We saw as Paul was leaving such great love between uh, Paul, the, the church planter and pastor, And the people that he led, they embraced, they wept, they prayed together. They even followed him all the way to his ship as he left. Well, they shared a deep love for one another and a determined love for Christ and his mission in this world. That's what praying that God will cultivate here is a deep love for one another. Just as Gary um, admonished us earlier that we're called to be one. Jesus prayed for us to be one, where when you look side to side, you go, this brother, this sister, we are one in Christ. That's part of our call, a deep love for one another and a driving passion for his gospel mission. So Paul's determined to go to Jerusalem. Uh, He's been traveling and uh, pastoring, planting churches, and he's been uh, collecting an offering to take back to the church in Jerusalem that's been struggling. And he comes back, he's excited to share with the brothers all that God's been doing on the mission field, bringing people of all different ethnicities into the body of Christ. And um, we're going to pick up his journey 
pick up with his journey as he's headed back to Jerusalem. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we read together from Acts 21? I want to cover the first 16 verses. This is the word of the Lord. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there, there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded We ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh, a Cyprus of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Father, this is your word. We trust that you would like to speak to us through it. So Holy Spirit, our ears are open to hear from you. Our hearts are yielded to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when we pick up this chapter, it almost reads like an excerpt from Luke's journal. You know, Luke is traveling along with Paul at this point, and he's jotting down the places and some of the quick details as they travel to Jerusalem. He's just sort of taking notes of the path of the journal. And that could possibly be more significant to the original hearers as they would maybe know some of these landmarks, some of these cities a little more familiar, much more familiarly than we do. It's kind of like if I explained how uh, in a few weeks we're going to take our students on a trip to the beach and I were to explain to you that, you know, we're headed to the beach and I start to tell you about the path that we're going to go down. We're going to stop at this restaurant and meet these people, eat this meal. You might would even Uh, think through and in your mind be able to envision those towns and maybe some restaurants. You might even say, hey, you probably need to swing through this particular place. They got the best hamburger or whatever, right? So you might have a mental picture 
as I, as I would describe those places, just as the original hearers would have mental pictures of what Luke's talking about as he talks about the different cities and places where they would go. While that may be significant, um, one particular thing that does surface that I'd really like to focus in on is that at every stopping point, Paul's journey is shared by gospel friends. Do you notice that? At every place they stop, they seek out disciples or followers of Jesus. They stay with them. They pray with them. This is a beautiful truth. And so I want to give you, uh, if you have your notes today, I want to just tell you a, a couple of things. As we live on mission for Jesus, we need gospel friendship. So in at least four places, the Bible says in Tyre, in Ptolemy, in Syria, and in Jerusalem, verses 4, 7, 8, and 16, in each of those places, Paul and his whole team are welcome to stay with gospel-sharing friends. So when I'm using this qualifier, gospel friends, to say these are people who have accepted the good news of Jesus and are his disciples. So here, I want to just show you a couple of things that... Um, Give clarity to the anatomy of gospel friendship. What, what sets that apart? One, one truth we can't help but notice is hospitality. Welcoming a brother or sister to share in your home, your couch, your food, your stuff, your resources, your, your livelihood, your space, your privacy. Kind of a mikasa, sukasa type of deal. That is a key component to gospel hospitality. One of the most beautiful realities of being a follower of Jesus is to find true family all over the world. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, experienced this but I have. I've, I've flown to foreign countries and been picked up at the airport by people I've never met. And I've rested peacefully in their home, slept on their couch or in their guest bed or on their floor. How's this possible? It's because we share the same Lord. Because we share a love and a submission, a yieldedness to Jesus. We, it's like we're immediate friends. Every other difference sort of falls away and we find unity in Christ. It's only because we share in following Christ together. We, as we gather as a church, we should aim to practice the same kind of gospel hospitality. Welcoming people. Working to make them feel at home. It's not fake. It's not inauthentic. Doesn't mean we break out the fine china and put our, sel- our best self forward. That's, that's actually not hospitality. It's just the opposite. We want to strive for authentic community. A family setting where everyone can be real. People are welcomed into your mess. They're welcomed as you follow Christ to follow with you. It's not about impressing people. It's about loving and being loved. This is what Paul's experiencing as he travels. Hospitality and also spiritual conversation. I want you to notice as Paul stops by, the conversation isn't on the the, the fastest camel in the Judea 500 or uh, how the grain and the barley stocks are rising and falling. It's, It's not that those are bad conversations. They're just earthly. They're not spiritual in nature. The gospel mission, what we see in the text is the gospel mission quickly becomes the topic of conversation. Paul's traveling through. and They're like, where are you going? Man, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem to preach the gospel. 
I'm going to Jerusalem to share with the church there, to give all of this blessing. It's come from all these Gentile churches. You should see what God's been doing all around the world. I've seen people fall on their faces in worship of Jesus that have never wanted to be a part of this faith. He's seen radical things and he comes into their fellowship talking that way. And the conversation quickly gets away from worldly things and into spiritual conversation. They obviously dig in and and discuss his plans to go to Jerusalem. These friendships, we're not told if these are friends he's had before or if they're, you know, first time like new people he's never met. He's just staying in their house. But these friendships are strong enough on the foundation of Jesus and the love is deep enough that even disagreement is okay and welcomed. Do you notice that? They even push back on his plan. Like, Paul, you the Spirit of God is telling me that if you go there, it's not going to go well for you. They're gonna, you're going to suffer. These people are going to hate you, Paul. They talk deep things. I want to ask you, do your friends, do your friendships press into deep spiritual places? Do you have friendships where people will push you in the mission of God in your own life? We'll push back on when you're making a decision or thinking about purchasing this or that. And somebody goes, you know, maybe you should not spend all that money in that way. Maybe this way. Do you have friendships where people press in with deep spiritual conversation? Well, the third aspect of gospel friendship we see in this text anyway is prayer. Before Paul departs, his friends want him to hear They're loving prayers. You realize when we pray, we're talking to God, right? So you can pray without letting anybody else hear. But there's something special about praying with and for a brother or sister in Christ aloud. Where they're hearing your petitions to God. And in this moment, they're kneeling. I love the picture, kneeling on the beach together. As Paul's about to board a ship, they're kneeling on the beach and praying and these brothers, whether, whether they're brand new acquaintances or longtime friends, they want their prayers to be heard by the Lord and by Paul so that he'll know their hearts and the nature of their prayers after he's gone. It's a great blessing to have people praying with you. Um, at Mountain View Church, one of the things that we have been encouraging and pushing for a long time is this reality. We believe that real discipleship only happens in real relationship. You're only really going to be passionately following Christ if you're being pushed by those around you, by your friendships, your relationships around you are encouraging and challenging you to pursue the Lord. If you're thinking, man, I wish I had some deep gospel friendships like what we see with Paul, um, shameless plug here, consider joining or hosting a life group. It's a good place to start. You know, if, if you look around, as, as Gary was talking, if you look around and you go, I don't really, I'd like to be one with these people, but I just don't know them. <laughs> a good place to start would be to get involved in a life group or a discipleship group, get plugged in, connect, begin having meals together and sharing life together and having spiritual conversations and praying with one another, exercising hospitality. That's what life group is designed for. It's designed to cultivate real relationships where all of those things begin to blossom 
for the glory of Jesus. In order for us to live on mission, we need each other, right? Can you do it alone? No, I can't do it alone. We need each other. And it can't just be, you know, fly by the seat of our pants relationships. We've got to be intertwined, connected, committed to one another and to Christ together. We need gospel friendship. So church, give yourself to meaningful relationships. There will be times when even your friends, although they love you and are well-intentioned, even friends may try to lead you off course. That's what we see in this text. Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem is challenged at every turn. What's up with that, right? How, how in the world could Paul be hearing from the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem and then all of his friends are hearing from the Holy Spirit and then turning to him and saying, don't go to Jerusalem. How does that work? Well, these believers, they genuinely love Paul. They don't want him to suffer. They don't want his ministry to be silenced in some jail cell. They don't want him to be beheaded like John or James were. They don't want his impact to stop. They're thankful for his ministry. They look and this particular step looks to them like a bad decision. They've heard from the Lord. What awaits him in Jerusalem? Suffering and hardship. But this is no surprise to Paul either. He said back in Acts chapter 20 and verses 22 and 23, I'm going to Jerusalem, he said, constrained by the spirit. That means under the control of the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, he said, except that in every city, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Paul's not blind to this. He's he's not unaware of the hardship that's coming. He's just devoted to go anyway. And this brings me to the second reality to live on mission for Christ requires gospel fortitude. Paul is compelled by the love of Christ. He's going to write in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15. We no longer live for ourselves. The love of Christ compels us. We live for him. Gospel fortitude. Let me warn you, church, the undertow of this life is toward what is easy and what is safe, what seems to benefit me most. But easy and safe and self-benefit are not always the path of the believer. In fact, Jesus says that following him means to deny yourself and to take up your cross daily. That's not easy. It's not safe. And it's not self-benefiting. Let me be clear for just a moment. To be a Christian is not just to agree to a set of beliefs. It's not just to affirm doctrinal truths. James 2 tells us that even the demons do that. They even tremble at what they believe. The distinction of a Christian faith Is to yield your life to this Jesus. It's not just to include a Sunday church gathering into your weekly schedule. No, to become and to be a Christian is actually to surrender your whole life to Jesus. To become his student, his follower, his disciple. He is now your master. 
You daily yield control to Christ. Like we sang, if he says go, you go. If he says stay, you stay. If he says don't do that anymore, do this instead, you obey. You obey because he's king. Don't be deceived. If you're still the boss, he's not your king. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? There's a conflict in our hearts, church. We say with our mouths what we don't do with our lives. And Jesus says, let it be no more. Yield your life to me. Have you ever been suckered into a great deal? <laughs> you ever had a fancy salesperson use the old bait and switch on you? Some of you may own a beachfront property in Kansas. I don't, I don't know. Um, when Lauren and I were first married, we didn't have the money to take the vacations we wanted. And uh, so uh, one day the phone rang and it was uh, a, a salesperson. And... Um, I somehow got suckered into several timeshare sales pitches. I don't know if you've done this. But we were promised four days and three nights at some luxurious resort in exchange for 90 minutes uh, of, of a sales presentation. If you've ever done this, I don't have to tell you, it's over-promising and under-delivering. <laughs> the 90 minutes is a high-pressure situation. That doesn't bother me too much. I actually kind of enjoy watching them sweat and work real hard to win my affection. Um, my wife, though, she's not a big fan of that setting. Um, she doesn't like high pressure stuff. And I remember after about two hours of one of these cat and mouse type situations, she gave me that look. You know the look. It means you better get us out of this now. And uh, anyway, 90 minutes is a joke, right? I mean, it's not 90 minutes. Come on. Uh, it's always at least half a day sales pitch. They, uh, they want to feed you some meal, you know, fatten you up. And then uh, you take a tour and you see all the fancy things of the property. Then you meet this new sales kid that they bring to your table. And when he can't close the deal, he goes back for the, they bring in the heavies. Right. Um, the whole time we're there. They kept ringing a bell, introducing people who just made purchases like all across the room. People are like, yeah, I just got suckered into buying something, you know, and uh, the whole time. Here's the thing, church. Bait and switch technique. It actually works. On the front end. You can catch the fish. But when the truth settles in, all they want to do is get out of the boat. Jesus never uses bait and switch. He's up front. He's straightforward about what it costs to follow him. He called his disciples. He said, follow me and I'll teach you to fish for men. That means you'll no longer be fishing for fish. You're going to abandon a former life. You're going to do what I call you to do. Follow me. I'm going to radically change your life. Jesus said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, count the cost. Jesus wants the committed. He's not interested in a crowd. So church, we must today count the cost. I'm thinking of the story now of the rich young ruler. Here's a guy who comes to Jesus and his followers. He's got great success. He's good looking. He's just, he's everything you might would want. He seems like he'd be a great addition to Jesus' team. And yet, Jesus is not a salesman. He tells that man in order to follow him, he's got to sell everything, give all that he has to the poor. Then you can follow me. Jesus was saying to him, you better count the cost up front. If you won't lay it down for me now, you won't lay it down for me when it's hard. Paul's reminded all along the way in his journey that if he goes to Jerusalem, the cost will be high. So many are warning him of the sufferings he will endure there. One prophet, this guy named Agabus, even comes with a visual. He takes Paul's belt off. That would be uncomfortable for me. Uh, But he takes Paul's belt off. He takes his belt, he wraps his hands, he ties up his feet and he says, this is what's going to happen to you if you go there. The crazy thing is the spirit of God is working, both leading Paul to go and warning him of the suffering and difficulty he would endure. Why would the spirit of God do that? It's not that the spirit is giving conflicting messages. It's that the spirit of God is giving clarity on what to expect and firming up his resolve to do it anyway. This is not bait and switch. Paul will not be pushed off course. He has gospel fortitude. His face was set to go and suffer. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 24, I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish the course And the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Listen, Paul knows and yet he goes. Paul's resolve points our hearts back to Jesus. Jesus would not be derailed. Though the enemy would tempt him in the desert to abandon his mission. He would not be taken off course, though even well-intentioned Peter would try to intervene. Lord, over my dead body, you're not going to die. Get behind me, Satan. Praise God, our Savior went all the way to Calvary. We see in Christ the incredible gospel fortitude. Jesus knew That coming to this earth was a death mission, but he still came. Jesus knew that his own would reject him, but he still came. When Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors, he knew the ridicule and hatred he would endure, but he did it anyway. He knew that going toe to toe with the religious elite would stoke the fires of envy And hatred, even to the point of murder. But he loved them anyway. When Jesus washed the feet of his followers, 
He knew even in the room, one of them would sell him out that very night. But he loved them all anyway. He knew the immense physical suffering of the cross and the spiritual suffering under the wrath of God against all sin. But Jesus endured the cross anyway. Jesus went all the way. He lived for the glory of the Father no matter the cost. And now we are called as followers of this Jesus to count the cost and find Him worth living and dying for. Think of a few missionary heroes I want to share a little bit. Some of these stories were actually shared uh, at Secret Church Friday night. I elbowed Gary and was like, I can't believe this. This is part of our message for Sunday. There's a man named Jim Elliott. Um, my son, his middle name is Elliot, in honor of this man's life. But Jim Elliott, he knew. He knew the Aka people of Ecuador. That they were a vicious, murderous tribe. He knew it. His friends warned him of the dangers. They actually said, Jim, you, you actually would have a better ministry if you stay here. They tried to convince him not to go, but he went anyway. He was speared to death by those he had gone to save. Before he died, he wrote in his journal these words. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. To gain that which he cannot lose. The Alka tribe was later won to Christ by Jim's widow and the other families of those whom were martyred. When you hear that, you can't help but think about Jesus's words. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Another missionary named C.T. Studd. He was a, a wealthy missionary, wealthy Englishman, actually. He trusted Jesus later in his life. He found Christ to be the supreme treasure in all of life. And soon after that, he decided he wanted to go to China. His family that loved him. They actually brought in a, another Christian worker to try to talk him out of it. Didn't work. After years of investing his life for the gospel in China, at the age of 50, C.T. Studd determined the Lord was calling him to spend his, the rest of his life in Sudan. And he did that to the glory of God. He began a great movement. The Lord used him to begin a great movement. For the gospel. One of my favorite C.T. Studd quotes is this one. I've told you this quote before, but listen carefully to these words. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We only get this one life. It's all you have. Paul says, I don't count my life as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus. When his friends tried to persuade him not to choose a path of suffering, Paul says, 
I'm ready not only to suffer, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a kind of resolve, a kind of gospel fortitude that the church today is missing. We want safe, we want comfortable, we want all the pretty things. I want to tell you two big takeaways that I hope rest on your heart. Following Jesus will cost, but not following Jesus will cost more. The idea of living and dying for Jesus may seem like a waste to some of you. That's only because you don't realize this life is like a vapor anyway. And at the very end of it, if all you have to show is stuff, it'll be a waste. But if you have invested your life, not in earthly treasure, but in a heavenly treasure where moth and rust and thieves cannot steal. This is the mission that Jesus is calling you to. To live for a greater reality. Jesus says whoever would save his life will lose it. You don't want to come to the end of your life having saved it. All, the, all your life you've saved and saved and saved. Only to have nothing ultimately to show for it. Jesus is warning us. If you live for yourself now. The reality is you may suffer for eternity. So the call is trust in Jesus. Trust him. Treasure him. And surrender your life to him. So following Jesus will cost, but not following Jesus will cost more. And secondly, and this is where I titled the message. This whole idea, they they come to Paul pushing against him to say, you don't want to go there, you might die. And Paul's response is, there's something worse than dying. It's not really living. We want to live for Christ, not just for another tomorrow. Your suffering today may be the path to someone's salvation for eternity. Church, hear this as a call to repentance for all of us. We must repent of our idolatry, of safety and comfort in this world. And give our lives to the gospel mission that all people may know and worship our God in the world to come. I don't think I say this loudly enough. This is not our home. We must stop living like this is home. More and more stuff, more and more stuff, bigger barns, better this, prettier, nicer that. This is not home. Our mission here is to bring as many people of all the peoples on the earth into the family of God and take them with us. This is not home. And we must repent. Or we will waste our lives on fleeting pleasures today when there is eternal joy with Him forever. Church, let's yield to the Spirit. Let's live together in gospel friendship with gospel fortitude, abandoning all the deceptiveness of the stuff of this life, the trinkets that trap our hearts. Let's yield ourselves and give ourselves fully to the glory of Jesus among all nations. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.